0: thanks for listening. The Forgotten Battles podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play Music, or your preferred podcatcher. If you would like to support the show, please visit our Patreon page at www.patreon.com. Also, please rate and review the show on your preferred platform. 323 BC, Alexander the Great died in Babylon, setting off a civil war amongst his generals for control of the vast empire that they had helped him conquer. When Alexander died, he had no living legitimate heir, which greatly fueled the ambitions of Alexander's commanders, almost all of whom were in their prime and were driven by the same desire for glory and conquest that had driven Alexander. Of the dead conqueror's two sons, one was an illegitimate love child born of a Parisian noblewoman. Parisian and the other was the yet unborn son of his Bactrian bride, Roxana. Alexander's friend and senior official, Perdiccas established a regency with the consent of the other Macedonian grandees, but he was only able to achieve this initial settlement after putting down a mutiny. Assemblies of the army were empowered to approve or disapprove of kings, and the men in the ranks who had helped Philip II conquer Greece and Alexander conquer Asia were far from shy about demanding that their preferences be honored. The Macedonian rank and file, like some of the other senior commanders, were xenophobic and did not like the idea of turning the empire over to Alexander's half-barbarian son if another male of pure Macedonian blood could be found. Although he had the mutineers trampled to death by elephants, Perdiccas was still forced to accept Alexander's developmentally disabled brother Philip III as one king to serve alongside of Roxana's son Alexander IV. While almost all of the men who dreamt of claiming a crown had helped Perticus defeat the mutiny of the phalanx, few of them were content with Perticus's settlement, which sought to curtail the power and opportunity of everyone who wasn't Perticus. The First War of the Successors began the very next year in 322. The First War of the Successors ended in 321, when Perticus was killed in a mutiny while campaigning in Egypt against Ptolemy. This time, his murderers included senior generals such as Seleucus... Perticus's chief deputy. In Asia Minor, Perticus's lieutenant Eumenes fared far better and had inflicted significant defeats on the coalition against Perticus, including bring about the death of Craterus, who had been regarded as the best of Alexander's generals. Antipater, the most senior official in the Macedonian world, was the head of the victorious coalition, and he led the conference at Triparadices, which sought to impose a new settlement to replace the one that Perticus had concocted at Babylon. At Triparadisis, Antipater decided to be far more conciliatory to his allies in order to establish goodwill and harmony among the successors. Antipater confirmed Ptolemy in his governorship in Egypt and also gave him permission to expand to the west. Ptolemy is typically credited with being the instigator of the first war of the successors, since he had stolen Alexander's body as it was en route to Macedon and kept it in Egypt. Seleucus wanted a satrapy, so Antipater assigned him to Babylon, the wealthy center of the sprawling empire. While he had not been one of the bodyguards and had not been one of Alexander's great commanders, Seleucus had been a rising star and was slated to take a greater role in Alexander's canceled campaigns. Perdiccas had chosen him as deputy for his ability and energy. Ptolemy was a few years older than Alexander, and while Seleucus was about the same age or perhaps a couple of years younger, both had fought alongside of Alexander during this whole invasion of Asia. One of the most immediate issues facing the victorious allies was the need to finish off Eumenes. For this task, Antipater decided to turn to a veteran general who had been relegated to the sidelines for the vast majority of Alexander's campaigns, Antigonus the One-Eyed. Antigonus was a talented field commander and a scrupulous governor. Antigonus had controlled Phrygia and Asia Minor for Alexander. Snubbed by Perdiccas, who confirmed Antigonus' appointment to Phrygia, but wanted him to serve under the Greek Eumenes, Antigonus was arguably the chief architect of the First War of the Successors, since he had persuaded Antipater and Craterus that Perticus was a threat. Antigonus was born in 382 BC, the same year as the late Philip II, making him 61 years old in 321. Antipater empowered Antigonus to a great extent, giving him both the new title of General of Asia, which made him secondary in seniority only to Antipater himself, who was General of Europe, and gave him the guardianship of the two kings. Perhaps Antigonus chose Antipater to reward Antigonus for his role in rescuing him from the middle of a mutiny which broke out in the early going of the Triparadices conference. However, despite Antipater's trust in his old friend Antigonus, Antipater chose to surround the one-eyed general with satraps and subordinates loyal to himself. Suddenly empowered after years of toiling away in relative obscurity, Antigonus the One-Eyed now joined the ranks of those Macedonian aristocrats who dreamt of ascending the throne. In 320, Antipater remained in Asia Minor to closely supervise Antigonus's efforts against Eumenes. Eumenes managed to win small but embarrassing victories, and this led to tension between Antigonus and his second-in-command, Cassander, who was Antipater's son. Cassander accused Antigonus of having regal aspirations, which caused Antipater to summon him for a conference, Antigonus, a charismatic and affable man, easily brushed aside Cassander's concerns and won back the trust of Antipater. With his health declining and desiring to return home, Antipater decided to transfer the control of the joint kings to himself and relocate them to Macedon, leaving Antigonus behind in Asia to deal with Eumenes. Cassander accompanied his father back to Macedon, which was probably a welcome development for Antigonus. Over the next few months, Antigonus finally contained Eumenes, who holed himself up in a small forest at Nora to await some favorable turn of events. The primary defect of Antipater’s settlement is that it was built around everyone’s trust and in relationship with Antipater himself. In early 319, just a few months after his return from Asia, Antipater fell ill and died. Without Antipater’s calming presence and steady hand, the governing arrangement set in place at Triparadisus quickly fell asunder. On his deathbed, Antipater handed over his regency and control over Europe to Polyperchon rather than to his son Cassander. Polyperchon was experienced and had served Antipater well, but he lacked the clout to fill the void left by the death of the grand old man of Macedon. Cassander quickly rose up in revolt and Antigonus agreed to help him. The succession dispute in Macedon, rather than being merely a localized problem, became an empire-wide issue and soon blossomed into the Second War of the Successors. Sensing a chance to seize power, Antigonus allowed Eumenes to agree to an oath and serve him. Antigonus planned to cross over to Europe and establish his own control over Macedon and the two kings. However, he discovered that Eumenes had sworn an oath to Alexander's mother Olympias and the joint kings and so the war in Asia Minor continued, with Polyperchon announcing his support for Eumenes. Outmatched by Antigonus, Eumenes marched east to seek help elsewhere in the empire, and Antigonus opted to chase him rather than to invade Europe. Thus, the second war of the successors turned into two separate wars stemming from a shared origin. In Macedon, Cassander eventually prevailed over Polyperchon, who found himself confined to the Peloponnese In the east, Antigonus was able to overcome Eumenes and the eastern satraps. During the war and in the immediate aftermath, Seleucus was Antigonus' most important ally. Both theaters of the war were resolved by the end of 316 BC. By this time, Antigonus the One-Eyed either directly or indirectly controlled almost all of Asia, which was the vast majority of Alexander's empire, and he was in an excellent position to acquire supreme power. Naturally, his chief rivals were painfully aware of this and began to plot against him at once. Ptolemy, who had controlled Egypt for the entirety of the successor era, seems to have been well versed in ancient Egyptian grand strategy. Like the pharaohs of the New Kingdom period, Ptolemy considered the area known as Coele Syria, which approximately was located in the area of modern Israel, Palestine, Lebanon, and southern Syria to be instrumental to the preservation of his realm. Coele Syria was not valuable in its own right but it did create a buffer zone with enemies to the north and east while also giving egypt more direct access to major trade routes new kingdom egypt had battled the later bronze age foes for control of this region most famously the hittites a long term struggle which produced the battle of kadesh history's first recorded battle with any degree of battlefield detail new kingdom egypt had battled their late bronze age foes for control of this region most famously the hittites Cassander and Lysimachus in Europe were not completely secure in their respective realms of Mason and Thrace, and they knew that however inconvenient a war with a power as great as Antigonus might be, there was no alternative they planned to retain their lands and their lives. In the year or so after Antigonus began to systematically remove the other major players in the east, the governor of Medea, Pithon, one of Antigonus's greatest allies, was summoned to a conference and executed since Antigonus did not trust him and didn't want to leave someone in his rear who had once aimed for control of the eastern satrapies. The popular governor of Persis, Pucestus, a former bodyguard of Alexander and an ally of Eumenes in the last war, was deposed. Pucestus, who had adopted the Persian dress and customs, had endeared himself to the Persian nobility to the point that one of their number complained very loudly to Antigonus about his unfair treatment of Pucestus. Antigonus ordered the man executed. Afterwards, the Persians found that they could indeed live in a post pucestus world. Pucestus was either imprisoned or kept in Antigonus' court for the rest of his life. Another former ally that Antigonus sought to eliminate was the satrap of Babylonia, Seleucus. Seleucus did not command more than a few thousand men, but Babylonia was wealthy and Seleucus was both popular and a proven plotter who had played a key role in bringing about the downfall of Perdiccas. When Antigonus demanded to see Seleucus's account books, Seleucus was wise enough to know that Antigonus was looking for an excuse to remove him, as he had just recently done to Pucestus and Pithon. By asking to audit Seleucus, Antigonus was in essence claiming to have the authority of a regent or a king, and all of his contemporaries would have undoubtedly interpreted his actions that way. Seleucus fled to Ptolemy with some of his closest associates. began to spread horror stories about Antigonus and build support for a grand coalition. The principal cause of the Third War of the Successors, and by extension the Battle of Gaza, were the ambition of Antigonus the One-Eyed. Antigonus' ambition was to unite the rest of Alexander's empire and he made no effort to conceal this. His rivals proposed a peace that would redistribute the gains of Antigonus equally among them. But this proposal was not a serious one. rather a pretext to make war in the third war of the successors every major leader was an aggressor and all of them share the guilt for starting the war by 315 antigonus the one-eyed was 67 years old and increasingly relied on his son nephews and subordinates to help him govern his vast holdings and command armies in his absence just two years before his only son demetrius had come of age and fought with distinction at parasitine and Gabienne. Demetrius, although young and inexperienced, was bold and talented. During the year of the Third War of Successors, Demetrius would serve at his father's side, but operate independently starting in 314 when he was about 23 years old. As the man with the most financial and military resources, Antigonus' strategy was to keep his enemies distracted and divided, so that he could finish them off one by one. Antigonus sent money into the Peloponnese to bolster Cassander's Greek enemies, and also began to sow foment against the Thracians and Greeks living under Lysimachus. Antigonus's nephew, Polymaeus, went to Asia Minor and contained a small invasion by one of Cassander's generals. The initial strategy of Antigonus was to contain Cassander and Lysimachus while going after Ptolemy first. Antigonus sought to disrupt Ptolemy's operations by seeking naval allies. In Cyprus, Antigonus's agents sent money to the local rulers and got some of them to defect and revolt. Antigonus also entered into negotiations with the Rhodians, who had the strongest non-Masonian fleet at this time. To divide Ptolemy's ground forces, Antigonus sparked a revolt in Cyrene, located in modern Libya, one of Ptolemy's other holdings. For his main thrust, Antigonus himself established his control in Cilicia and Phoenicia, initiating successful sieges of Tyre and Sidon and spreading down the coast at Ptolemy's expense as far south as Gaza, where he emplaced a garrison. While the siege of Tyre was developing, Antigonus ordered the coastal cities of Phoenicia to construct a fleet of 500 ships. With that force, he would be able to support an overland invasion of Egypt. Seleucus's so status at this time is somewhat ambivalent. One of the signatories and beneficiaries of Triparadisus, he was theoretically a colleague of Ptolemy, Cassander, and Lysimachus. Unlike his allies, however, Seleucus had no troops or land of his own. By 315, Seleucus was 43 years old and had just recently seen himself fall from governing an important satrapy to being a refugee. Undaunted, however, Seleucus served as one of Ptolemy's commanders and advisors. Seleucus commanded the majority of Ptolemy's forces in Cyprus. The 170 or so ships that he commanded there represented the largest independent command of his life up to that point. The most notable action that Seleucus oversaw during this period was the Siege of Cetium, where the troublesome Phoenician king Pumiathan was the focal point of Antigonus' efforts to subvert the island. Seleucus must have negotiated a settlement with Pumetheon since he is next mentioned as a disloyal ally of Ptolemy. Back in Phoenicia, Antigonus had raised and dispatched about 250 ships, around half of his target number, and these ships set sail for the Aegean, thus Seleucus missed the opportunity to fight a major pish battle while in independent command. At the same time, Ptolemy directed his personal attention to the rebellion of Cyrene. He seems to have reduced the Greeks in this area in 315 and then moved on to either Cyprus or Egypt by the next year. Another Ptolemaic fleet of 50 vessels sailed to Greece to aid Cassander's garrisons. But ultimately, this force does not seem to have had much of an impact, and it was recalled to Cyprus. Since Ptolemy had over 200 ships stationed at Cyprus, and Antigonus had shifted his new navy to another theater, Ptolemy was able to launch raids of Cilicia and Phoenicia. However, in 314, it was clear that Antigonus had gotten the better of the war's early going, and he was positioned to hazard an invasion of Egypt. The thinking and mood of both Antigonus and Ptolemy was altered considerably by a relatively minor victory by the Ptolemaic admiral Polyclitus, who was in command of the 50 ships returning from Greece. While he was on his way back to Cyprus, Polyclitus had spotted an Antigonid force operating along the coast with land troops. Landing his men, Polyclitus had successfully ambushed the Antigonid troops and then marched into their camp to capture the Antigonid commander and a number of ships. This action greatly bolstered Ptolemaic morale, while it seemed to deter Antigonus to some extent. The two leaders met at a conference at Ecragama, a remote premonitory. While the ostensible purpose of this conference was to negotiate for the return of the prisoners taken by Polyclitus, it was in reality a chance for both rulers to feel out the intention of the other and try to gain advantage. For Antigonus, if he had managed to make peace with Ptolemy, this would have freed up his entire attention for his other fronts. Ptolemy knew that Antigonus' empire was too big to stand and that his best chance was to ride it out with his allies, so he made some demands including the return of the satrapy of Babylon to Seleucus. The negotiations proved to be entirely fruitless, although it is likely that had Antigonus offered a generous deal that Ptolemy could have been persuaded to abandon his allies. Had the conference at Ekragama gone differently, the consequences are almost incalculable. In 314 BC, despite the failure of the negotiation between Antigonus and Ptolemy, the two rulers largely behaved as if they had made peace. Antigonus went to Asia Minor to shift the focus of his war efforts, and he took the bulk of his forces. Antigonus seems to have decided that Ptolemy was sufficiently checked for the moment, or, if John Granger is right, he perhaps felt that an invasion of Egypt at that time would be too risky or costly. He left Demetrius with a respectable field army, and some senior officers to hold Syria, and also to serve as a check on Ptolemy, while he hoped to achieve something great in Europe. Cassander's position was weak, and with Thrace being so unstable, Antigonus had every reason to believe that he could cross into Europe with his main field army, that his enemies there would just collapse, and he would be able to claim the regency and the empire. In the event, Lysimachus was able to foil Antigonus's well-laid invasion plans through a brilliant series of maneuvers and small battles in 313. Going into 312, Antigonus was still determined to cross the Hellespont, and the situation still suggested that if he could ferry his army across, Macedon, Thrace, and the Regency would all be his for the taking. Ptolemy, for his part, was able to retake a few of his old holdings along the coast using his naval superiority. He also continued to harass Silesia and other coastal settlements that were under Antigonid control. Ptolemy himself led his army into Palestine and Syria, and he was shadowed by Demetrius. Ptolemy had the larger army and was far more experienced as a commander, but the 54-year-old veteran of Alexander's campaigns found himself unable to catch Demetrius napping. So the two armies never clashed directly, and both retired to winter quarters without fighting any major actions. Ptolemy did retake some ground, but it seems to have still held significantly less than what he had possessed prior to the outbreak of the Third War of the Successors. Demetrius, in other words, was successfully containing Ptolemy so that his father could operate elsewhere and pursue more fruitful opportunities. Going into 312 BC, Ptolemy and Seleucus, who accompanied him, decided to force a battle with Demetrius and take him off guard by invading early in the season. Most scholars assume that the idea was Seleucus's since he would be chafing at the bit and eager for any action that might help restore him to the east. However, we should not overlook Ptolemy's eagerness to reclaim parts of Palestine, Phoenicia, and Syria that he had lost in the parts of northern Syria that he had always coveted. News of the preparations that Ptolemy was making to raise a large army in Egypt traveled to Demetrius. Rather than await his enemy's arrival in Syria, Demetrius decided to march into Ptolemy's lands and meet the enemy in his own territory. The place that Demetrius chose as his preferred site for the battle was a plain just outside of Gaza. The battle was fought early in the campaigning season at Gaza due to unorthodox strategic thinking and was conducted in a way that differed from Macedonian tactical orthodoxy. Furthermore, the battle itself and the campaigns leading up to it and following it involved three of the most important figures from the War of the Successors, engaging in one of the most fiercely contested battles of the era. In fact, in an age where many battles ended before they properly started due to mass defection, the Battle of Gaza was fought with desperate valor and unflagging dedication. Most significant of all, however, is that Gaza created the conditions which allowed Seleucus to return to Babylon and alter the course of world history. The battle begins in part two of this two-part series.